Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Our guest this evening is U.S. Senator Cory Booker. Tonight we'll be getting to know Senator Booker and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Cory Booker was born in Washington, D.C. in 1969. He grew up in New Jersey and graduated from Northern Valley Regional High School before going to Stanford on a football scholarship and earning his bachelor's degree. He also got a master's from Stanford, was a Rhodes Scholar, and received his law degree from Yale. He worked as an attorney in the nonprofit sector and served on the Newark City Council from 1998 to 2002, where he highlighted the problems of violence in Newark and called for more transparency in local government. In 2006, Booker was elected mayor of Newark, serving from 2006 to 2013, when he won a special election to fill the U.S. Senate vacancy created by the death of Frank Lautenberg. Booker was re-elected in 2014 to a full six-year term. During his tenure, he has authored and worked on bills to reform the criminal justice system and expand economic opportunity. And he's an original co-sponsor of the Equality Act to protect the rights of LGBTQ Americans. Senator Booker still lives in Newark's Central Ward. Senator Booker, thank you so much for joining so us for here. conversation with Canada. This Canada. is a wonderful forum that you do. We very much appreciate you being here. So what better prepared you to be President of the United States, being the mayor of Newark or being a U.S. Senator? Well, I'm glad to be the only guy in this race, only person in this race that has had both experiences. I've been the chief executive of my state's largest city through the worst economic challenges of the recession, and we massively turned it around. The biggest economic development boom in 60 years, reformed our courts, reformed our park systems, even brought about the biggest change in our school system, where now we're ranked number one in the country for beat the odd schools, high poverty, high performance. And then went to the Senate in a time of cynicism where you say you can't get things done in Washington. I reached across the aisle, found allies, passed major pieces of legislation from criminal justice reform, which I led on the Democratic side with Dick Durbin, to even, I was just up in uh, the North Country, and they're benefiting from the Opportunity Zone legislation I wrote to get low-income areas, rural areas, investments and better tax treatment to pull in more resources for jobs. And I'm proud of what's happening in New Hampshire as a result of my work. So to have a resume that says, hey, I was a chief executive, I ran something big, the buck stopped with me, and I found ways in Washington, despite its partisanship and tribalism, to get actual real legislation done to make a difference for uh, Granite Staters. I'm, I'm really proud of that uh, resume, that, those two parts of my resume. You made a point of living among the people you seek to lead, essentially. You were in a housing project by choice uh, but from, I think, 1998 to 2006 when you were elected mayor. Uh, and you still live in that same neighborhood today. So if you're elected president, how are you going to record, you know, Stay in contact with the people while living at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Well, you know, Grand Staters should know I made a decision with my life from a very young man that I'm going to be a part of the communities that are still in struggle. And I found a lot of places in, in, uh, here in New Hampshire where people feel like their communities are overlooked or left behind. And I, I stuck it out with an incredible community. We don't confuse wealth with worth. We may be a low-income community below the poverty line, but the people in the neighborhood have this defiant love. We've come together and brought supermarkets into food deserts, got new schools built, uh, new parks built, and that's what keeps me focused, is staying connected to the communities that are still struggling to make the American dream happen. And it, it also makes me more committed, frankly, when you live in a neighborhood with gun violence. 
just in my neighborhood last week, we had two young men shot. Uh, kid, uh, young man killed with an assault rifle on my block last year. Uh, I see the way we failed at the opioid crisis in my neighborhood when I go across the street to Integrity House, which is a drug treatment center, with these great neighbors and humans who have had, unfortunately, their addictions and, and some mental health challenges treated with jail and prison and not health care and treatment. So when you live in a neighborhood like that, you go to Washington every day with this sense of urgency. We can't wait uh, to solve these problems. And that's the kind of president I'm going to be, uh, to fight with a greater sense of urgency and determination to unite this country, to get rid of this lie that the lines that divide us are stronger than the ties that bind us, to bring this country together to achieve justice for my neighborhood, communities here that are struggling in New Hampshire and around our country. Do you have any concerns that this primary is drawing Democrats too far to the left? By the time the general election comes around, independents aren't going to be able to relate to that candidate because they're too liberal. Well, again, as a mayor, you are a fierce pragmatist. You know, there's a joke from a former mayor long ago. He used to say there's no Democrat or Republican way to fix a pothole. You just got to fix it. Most of my political career, actually, more years as a mayor than, I, than I've been a senator now, are with this fierce uh, uh, urgency to say, hey, people just want you to solve their problems, which forces you not to be stuck in ideological purity. Heck, I had a Republican governor in my state, uh, and I had to find ways to, to get things done because my uh, neighbors don't care about the speeches I give. They care if things are going to get better. Are there are more jobs in our city. Are the school system getting better? So it really forced me to never let ideological purity hold hostage progress for people and to find ways to negotiate, to bring change to happen. And so I don't look at this primary field anything but, hey, just like when I was running high school track, <laughs> I'm, in my, I'm in on, on the starting block and we're running this race. I'm not looking to the left or to the right. I'm going to run my race and bring my ideas, my vision, uh, my pragmatic experience of getting things done in terrain people said you couldn't get things done and put that before the people and, and not worry about how, how pundits are calling it. On the issue of gun violence, you've staked out your territory saying that uh, you would call for federal licensing of firearms. Let's say you get that passed as president. What would you do with people who opt not to license their guns as a matter of principled civil disobedience? Well, first of all, m most uh, gun owners understand that you know, we, we get driver's license, show basic competency, pass, you know, show that you can pass background checks. This is not that much of an intrusion. The only people that should be worried about my comprehensive gun safety work is uh, gun runners, criminals, and the corporate gun lobby who has been uh, uh, forcing this country to, uh, to shift a debate that works for them and their sales and their corporate profits and not for the safety of our community. And we've seen this before, you know, in states that have done it, you know, Connecticut did it, they lowered violence in their state 40%. Suicides went down significantly as well. You know, they saw that licensing was not in any way creating law a problem for law-abiding gun owners. And so we did this in the, in the past with machine guns. We said that they were going to be illegal in our country. You couldn't sell them. And, and we were able to transition into that in a way that didn't intrude upon people's Second Amendment rights. And so I hear a lot of people trying to take the extreme. Well, what about that person? Are you going to come and take their weapons? And I say, wait a minute. We can do this in a process that's fair and reasonable and create the kind of successes we've seen in states like Connecticut with dropping the floor out of gun violence. Because right now, Americans, we have to understand, we should be about the common defense. We've had more people die in the last 50 years due to gun violence than every war in this country's history combined from the Revolutionary War through the World Wars, Vietnam, Korea. All of that combined is, is less than we've lost in the last 50 years through the carnage within our own communities and our neighborhoods. It's time for us to say, hey, we can have personal responsibility where 
Gun owners can have their weapons. My grandfather took me out hunting. It's one of my more precious memories with him, where people can have their, their, their guns, and we can have safety as well. They're not mutually, they're not, uh, uh, mutually exclusive. All right, Senator Booker, thanks for your time here. Thank you Let's much. go meet the town hall audience. Right. Coming up after the break, we'll bring that studio audience into that conversation. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. And tonight's guest, Senator Cory Booker, a candidate for president from New Jersey. Let's jump right in with our New Hampshire town hall voters. We're going to start with Beverly Cotton. Welcome to New Hampshire. Beverly, it's really good to be here, especially the day after Mother's Day with my mom. Thank you for being yes. here. Yeah. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor, and that's quite a pre-existing condition among many others. We know protection for these conditions is very much in peril. If elected, what measures would you see put in place to protect people like me? Beverly, thank you for your uh, question and for your courage. I know from family members of mine that that's a really tough fight that takes a lot. And uh, I pray that like my family members, you, I'm sure you had a lot of people around you to support you through it. Uh, I have been offended that we are in a nation, number one, where people who have cancer aren't worrying about battling the disease, but they're also, also often worrying about just how they're gonna pay for all of the incredible costs. That's unconscionable to me. For us to have the most expensive healthcare system on the planet Earth and still have people that worry about accessing care or affording prescription drugs. And that's why I found that uh, the current president and Republicans in Washington's attacks on the Affordable Care Act is, was unbelievable to me, that they would attack the pre-existing condition and they're still doing it now through legal means. And so if I'm president of the United States, the first thing I'm gonna do is stop the sabotage of the Affordable Care Act and make sure that no family in America who is struggling like my family did with my father's Parkinson's or your family is with the scourge of cancer, that no family is having to worry about uh, affordability or having an insurance company deny you insurance. But I'm gonna go further than that. Uh, I believe that we need to expand coverage for more Americans. I believe in the United States of America, healthcare is a right. We can't say we're a nation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because essential for life essential for liberty from fear, essential for the pursuit of happiness is having health care. And so I believe health care for all is something we should be have. I believe Medicare for all is the best way to get there, but it's going to be very hard to do that right away. And so when I'm president, I'm not only going to secure the Affordable Care Act, but I'm going to expand coverage by lowering Medicare eligibility so it can go down to 55, more people can get in. I'm going to lower your cancer drug costs by taking on the prescription drug companies and driving down those costs as well. We can do so much better. And the last thing I want to say, it's so important, we need to double down on cancer research and the NIH and making sure that we in America, not other countries, are leading the way for finding a cure to cancer and having breakthroughs with other diseases as well. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Beverly. Next question comes from Joan Wentworth. Good evening, Senator. Hi, Joan. How are you? Good, good. I'm hearing a lot of people, candidates and voters, talking about issues such as immigration, medical care, and gun control. But there's one topic that seems conspicuously absent is any discussion about the annual federal budget deficit, more than doubling since 2015, and once again approaching a trillion dollars. Are you at all concerned about this? And as president, how would you approach this issue? I'm so happy you asked that question because in this race, I'm a little distinct. Uh, I was the mayor of a major American city uh, and uh, actually had to run uh, a ship 
without having to print more money. I actually had to balance budgets. In fact, I joke that there's probably nobody in the United States Senate who had to run something. There are governors there, county executives there, and so forth, that actually had to make the tough calls of cutting government. I had to very painfully, but we had to do it, uh, cut my government 25% while I was mayor. I found ways to create more efficiencies in our government systems. And so having run something, uh, when I get to Washington and see the screwy math that we do, and how this is a, a president who literally just passed a tax bill that kicked up massive tax breaks for corporations and wealthy folks that blew even bigger holes in our deficit. It's so strange to me that we talk about who is more fiscally responsible, but we see Democratic presidents like Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton and President Obama who are driving down our annual deficits, and Republicans seem to be blowing bigger holes in them. And really what they're doing is paying for all these things on their credit card, and they're going to charge the interest and the debt is going to be passed on to the next generation. That is unacceptable. We're blowing holes in our deficits for tax breaks for the wealthiest Americans, and guess what we're also doing? We're not taking care of our home. We used to have the best infrastructure on the planet Earth, and now we're about to hand over $2 trillion of infrastructure debt to our kids. So not only are we not paying our bills, but we're not taking care of the kind of investments we used to do to grow a, a, an economy that gave more shared wealth to people, like infrastructure and education. And so I'm going to solve that problem. I, I'm making that commitment to you right now. I'm going to solve it in the way that I used to do math when I was a mayor. <laughs> and that's kind of real math, not Washington math. And what you do is you have to bring in more revenue. You have to cut more expenses and do things that grow your economy. How will I do that? Number one, I'm going to repeal these toxic Trump tax cuts uh, and have a tax system that works for working Americans and not for the wealthiest of the wealthy, that invests in things, that uses our tax revenues to invest in things that actually do grow our economy, like education and infrastructure. And I'm going to stop the incredible waste that I see in Washington that to me makes no sense whatsoever. Let me pick you so you want a couple of my favorites. One is our criminal justice system. We spend billions of dollars locking people up. And remember, if you use your, your criminal justice system like we do to jail people who are addicted, to jail people uh, who are mentally ill, it is the most expensive way to deal with those issues instead of health care and treatment. And it doesn't solve the problems. It makes them worse. That's why we have recidivism rates 50, 60 plus percent. And so by doing things the right way, the morally right way, we're going to shrink our expenditures and elevate human life. And the last example of some savings I'm going to get you is in the United States military. First of all, when I read the, the audits of, those, of the, our military, it's a tale of, of horrors. The way we do everything from procurement and the games that are played to jack up our military costs is unacceptable. I'm going to attack that. And I'm going to make sure that we're not spending things that we shouldn't be spending. You know we were refueling the jets and providing the bombs that the Saudis were using to drop on children in Yemen? We need to be responsible fiscally and responsibly morally in the way we do foreign policy in ways that are going to save Americans money and, uh, and affirm our values. I, I, my grandparents, survivors of the Depression, raised me to say, hey, you've got to be fiscally responsible in your life in order to create more abundance. Discipline creates freedom. We're lacking that in Washington. I'm going to bring fiscal discipline. I'm going to invest in our values, grow our economy, and make workers in this country uh, be able to have a better standard of living. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joan. Next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Hi, good evening. Good evening. 
Uh, as a University of Alabama alum and as the wife of a man who won two national championships with Penn State, I think it's really cute you went to Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know that that was the worst gut punch I have gotten <laughs> since I've been campaigning here. We are Pac-10 greats in Stanford. I played tight end. I was an All-American football player. The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> but all right, roll, Todd. Roll. roll Come on. Oh. Now you're talking. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to have to bring some levity with my question. Right. Um, according to Everytown Research, nearly 2,900 children, which is about how many people died in the World Trade Center, and teens are shot and killed, and nearly 15,600 are shot and injured every year. An estimated 3 million American children witness gun violence every year. I'm the mom of African-American children. And firearms are the leading cause of death for black children and teens in the US. Yet our gun culture is currently anesthetized to our children dying needlessly. And I say that as a gun owner. As president, how would you awaken our national conscience to this culture of apathy about our kids, our most precious resource, being killed? So I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for this question because I come at this issue in a way that nobody else does in the United States Senate, nobody else does in this presidential race. I live in a majority black and brown community. I live in an inner city. My community is below the poverty line, and, and, but yet I, I've never in my life mistaken wealth with worth. My children are as beautiful as all American children in my neighborhood and my community. We deal with this violence, not when there's uh, these horrible, horrible mass shootings, but on a regular, regular basis. Just days ago, there was a shooting in my neighborhood, a couple blocks from where I live, where two young men were shot. Just last year, Shahad Smith was killed with an assault rifle on my block. I, I can't tell you the gruesome reality of living in a community where you see child after child die and nobody seems to care. And what's worse than that, now that this is waking up as a reality for all Americans, we have Americans slaughtered in a church. Nothing changes. Americans killed at a concert. Nothing changes. Americans killed at a synagogue. Nothing changes. How can we do nothing? In my lifetime, 50 years, we have had more people killed by gun violence in America than every other war in our country's history from the Revolutionary War now combined. This is a uniquely American problem, and apathy is not enough. I'm tired of thoughts and prayers. In my church, I was taught that faith without works is dead. And so you're right. This happens and is affecting too many Americans. But for black African-American men and boys, we're, we're 6% of the, state, the nation's population, but over 50% of the homicide victims. So as your president, I'm going to bring a fight to this issue like has never been seen before. I'm going to wake up the moral imagination of our country that we should not be a nation with this kind of carnage, that we can do common sense things to make our community safe, and this debate should not be framed by the corporate gun lobby who has twisted and, convert and contorted our laws to make us less and less safe. So you want to know how I'm going to raise the moral imagination of this country? I'm coming at it to help our nation understand that we are a nation that when we unify across political divides, when we love all of our children, when we act 
with, with a more courageous empathy for one another, we can solve problems. It's how we won in the civil rights movement by expanding people's understanding that we're all in this together and we need to love one another. Well, love is not a sentiment, it's actions. And as your president, I'm taking actions to this issue and we will win. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Next question comes from Richard Bruno. Richard Bruno. Yes. All right. Yes. I um, love your last name. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And um, with a well, last name with a B, you might want to think about running for president. A lot of Bs. Oh, really? A lot yeah. Of Bs. I never thought of that. Thank you. Yes. Maybe you can help me with that. I, I will. Point. I mean, you know, 2020 doesn't stand advice. for the year of this presidential election. It stands for how many people are running. <laughs> 2020. Right. Well, thank you for taking my question. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you, it. My question has to do with campaign finance reform. And um, it's very concerning to me, I'm sure a lot of people, the influence of money, big money, in how we govern and how it influences our people in government. So I'd like to get your ideas with regard to the changes that you might uh, see that we should make. Uh, Citizens uh, United, obviously, is one of those things that I'm very concerned about. Uh, so could you give us your ideas on that, yeah. please? Well, first of all, I want to start with, with what I'm doing now. You can't campaign wrong and think you're going to govern right. And, and so my mom says, if you want to lead, the best way to lead is not with words, but with examples. So I want you to know my campaign takes no corporate PAC money, no federal lobbyist money, no pharma exec money. I think that this dark money is pernicious, and I want to start with myself and setting a standard. What we should all be doing is rejecting that. Number two, he mentioned Citizens United. We all should be offended that we live in a nation where our Supreme Court has basically said, hey, corporations are human beings. Well, I'm sorry. That is just not the case. Uh, and to give them the, the rights that humans have, to say that their speech rights are the same as ours, uh, suddenly it doesn't create equality, it actually creates the suppression of the individual speech rights as these corporations who are amassing extraordinary amounts of money and drowning out our voices because you all are up here in an early primary state and you see all these ads being run from international corporations who are channeling their money and drowning out the voices of individual citizens. We need to not only end Citizens United, but we need to pass comprehensive campaign finance reform uh, through the United States Congress. I am telling you, I've been now in Washington five, six years, and I've seen how the corrupting culture of corporations will spend hundreds of millions of dollars to change little tax laws to get themselves a loophole that will help them over time make billions of dollars. And meanwhile, workers in America, kids in America, are, who's their advocate? Who's their lobbyist? This has to end. It is anti-democratic. It is corrupting. And as President of the United States, I will fight this issue because we can work to change a lot of laws. But if we don't change a broken system, then we will never get our democracy back on track focusing on what matters. Human contact, human connection, not corporations and corporate power. It's about affirming the dignity and the voice of every American. And it's time, there's a saying in, in African-American communities from a great song, lift every voice and sing. Well, I will bring about a chorus of conviction that will change these laws so that we have a vindication of, of, of humans and, and, and American citizens in this country again. Thank you very much. I look forward for you to do that. Thank you, Thanks. sir. Thank Thanks, you. Richard, we have a social media question coming in here from John Mata. Wait, hold on. Is it coming on, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook? Where is it you coming know, they from? They don't specify for They me. don't specify. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the ether. Somewhere it's in the ether. Okay. So John Mata asks uh, a labor force question. What is your plan to get more workers help with the critical labor shortage facing our country? Um, well, I, I want to go right at this because uh, the very first piece of legislation I, I introduced when I was mayor uh, well, excuse me, when I was a United States Senator, was uh, on apprenticeship programs. 
We have a nation right now that's falling behind a lot of our competitors in preparing people for 21st century jobs. My dad used to tease me. He's like, boy, you got a degree in sociology, political science, history. I don't know what you're qualified to do. You're more, you're, you got more degrees in the month of July, but you ain't hot. <laughs> for the 21st century, we need, four-year college is not always the answer for the jobs that are needed. I love hearing all this conversation about affordable college. I, I'm, I'm, I've got a debt-free college plan, but remember, right now, 35% of American kids go to college. I want to see that number get bigger, but I also know that I'll take a kid with a plumbing license over a kid with an art history degree when it comes to jobs that actually are going to pay and, and give you a good career. But we're falling behind in that preparation. Other nations are doing a better job in helping people get to advanced manufacturing jobs, to become machinists and other jobs that are really good union jobs, benefits and more that give great careers and entree into the middle class. So what I'm committed to is, is incredible to making us the best nation in America, in, excuse me, in the world for apprenticeship programs, but I also don't want to stop there. I want to make one more really important point. We also have to be a party that begins to talk to people who are feeling that insecurity of the future of work in that it might make their jobs disappear. Yeah, we need to have fair trade laws so American workers don't lose out uh, because of other people suppressing wages in their country and stealing our jobs. I believe in that, but remember, we're losing a lot of work right now because of the microchip of automation. We can see literally 20, 30, 40% of our jobs as we know them right now disappear in my lifetime. How are we preparing people for that? If we're not talking to those people's concerns, for example, I, I believe we need to deal with the urgency of climate change. And, but if I'm a coal miner and I look to the Democratic Party and you don't have a vision for me, I'm going to vote for somebody else. And so this is how we're going to deal with this. Other countries have what I call mid-career apprenticeship programs, meaning if your job disappears, you can shift over to another job, have an so, apprenticeship program where you can learn and earn at the same time, and I'll stop. We've got to continue online and on our mobile app. The conversation will continue. Join us it. there. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly, 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. When we finished on television, we were just having Senator Cory Booker explain his job training program, yes. apprenticeships, and Senator, we'll let you finish Thank off you your answer. Because he was getting closer and closer, telling me to stop on my time. I just thought you were really excited about <laughs> apprenticeship programs. We do want to hear the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's just this idea that if you are a worker in America, you shouldn't have to go from a good-paying union job at a factory or coal mine and then know that if you lose that job, you're going to end up in a Walmart not without enough money to support your family. Other countries do it better. They have mid-career apprenticeship programs where you can continue to earn while you learn a new skill. We should be providing that for workers as now. We should do things on portable benefits to make sure uh, uh, that our workers can take benefits with you and still have, be saving towards retirement. We've got to start anticipating the future of work. And the last thing I'll say about this, I wasn't a hockey player, but I love Wayne Gretzky because he used to say, I don't skate to where the puck is, I skate to where the puck is going to go in, anticipate, in anticipation. If I'm going to be your president, I'm going to not just be a great president now, but I'm going to be the Wayne Gretzky of presidents and anticipate where, where things are going and make sure we're prepared for the economy of the future. Our next question comes from Joan Krimlisk. Welcome. Thank you, Joan. Um, Please tell me you have no... Alabama or Penn State football players <laughs> in your background? <laughs> Not those states. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, what are your objectives for the criminal justice reform plan? So I, I don't like the, often the bluster and braggadociousness of, of uh, our president and, and the overstatements, but I, I can safely say there is nobody in the United States Senate who is fighting for criminal justice reform more than I am. 
I'm probably the person who's authored the most bills of recent or uh, been a part of the biggest bills. This is an urgency for me because we have a criminal justice system that's broken. As Brian Stevenson says, it treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. It has taken away our precious dollars while infrastructure was crumbling. Between the time I was law school and mayor of the city of Newark, we were building a new prison or jail every 10 days. We were locking up the most vulnerable citizens in our country, disproportionately poor, disproportionately mentally ill, disproportionately our veterans, the addicted, and minorities. And people think that this is uh, uh, something that is, oh, we're locking up those violent criminals. No. Did you know there was more marijuana arrests in 2017 for possession than all the violent crimes combined? This is being fueled by a failed drug war, which isn't a war on drugs. It's a war on people. Think about this. There are now people in jail or with criminal convictions for doing things that two of the last three presidents admitted to doing. And this drug war has fueled that 500% increase in our in our. Uh, criminal justice system in our, in our prison population since the 1980s. So I'm going to attack it. I have already. The only p major piece of bipartisan legislation to pass under this president was one that I led. It was the First Step Act, had comprehensive criminal justice reform. I led it with Dick Durbin on the, on, in the Senate on the Democratic side and helped to author that bill. I will continue to fight until we have a criminal justice system that affirms the dignity, rights, and liberties of people, doesn't lock them up unnecessarily, has more prevention involved in it, or treatment, uh, mental health care, that makes sure that we have mandatory minimums. I actually don't believe that these things are, are, are helping our system, that actually has sentencing that's fair and proportional, to make sure that we treat people when they are in prison, banning some things that we do now. I was able to get solitary confinement for children banned on the federal level, but we have a lot of other practices in our prisons that are just unjust and wrong. And then we don't do things to prepare people for when they come home, like giving access to education, uh, doing things to affirm their bonds with their families and children. And then finally, when we come home, I authored the bill to help people do things like get jobs, ban the box that people have to check to tell them, hey, I have a nonviolent drug crime for doing things that you were probably doing in your college days, uh, but now you're not going to hire me because of that, of that charge. No, we need to move that process back into hiring and have a sensible way of having people coming home and being able to get their lives back together. Um, I have a number of bills that are out there, but as president, I will have a lot more leverage to make us a nation that doesn't leave the planet Earth in incarceration. One out of every three incarcerated women on the planet Earth are in America. And we're the land of the free. We are going to have a, a criminal justice system that, reflect, uh, that reflects our values and that really is about restorative justice. Thanks, John. Thank Quick you. follow-up. Some have a goal of reducing that prison population by 50%, uh, but the federal prison population is only about 45% drug offenders. So who's that other 5%, if that's a number you're going for, well, who would I, get out? Again, I, I don't want to put the numbers on it specifically. And I, I do support organizations like Cut 50, and, and a lot of my friends help run that organization, because on the, on the uh, most, the federal government only has about 10% of the prisoners. Uh, the rest are in states. I'm really proud that I've stood with others. In fact, me and another presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren, did a great bill together called the Dignity Act. We haven't passed it on the, on the federal level, but over 10 states have taken our law and are helping to do common sense things for women in prison that are doing it right. And so if we readjust our laws, end this war on drugs, attack things like implicit racial bias, because no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or dealing drugs, but blacks are almost four times more likely to be incarcerated for those things, so twisted in our country now that we have more African-Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves in 1850. So I'm going after this issue in a comprehensive fashion that will dramatically lower the rates of incarceration, elevate human dignity, and make us as a society so much safer. Next question comes from George Matthews. Well, I'm a strong progressive, 
Beating the current occupant of the White House is paramount. How will you distinguish yourself from your fellow Democratic candidates without destroying each other nor scaring off the centrist voters? Well, first of all, I want to I challenge everybody who's watching that, that, you know, this election can't simply be about one guy in one office. Beating Donald Trump is the floor, but let's not stop there. Let's have a larger aspiration for our country because a lot of the problems we're talking about started well before Donald Trump was elected. And if that becomes our end-all and be-all, we may have a new president in office, but we're not going to deal with, with the, the, the wage stagnation in our country, with the polluted water like we're seeing with PFAS is here. We're not going to deal with the climate change urgency. These are things we need to do, be more aspirational. Let us not let him dull the, the size of our dreams and ambitions. But that brings me to what I really believe our country needs. First of all, we're not going to beat Donald Trump by fighting him on his terms, by showing the worst of who we are. I had a guy in the town hall say to me, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. And I look at him, I go, yo, man, that's a felony. Okay, I I'm not going to take on the tactics of the person I'm trying to beat. That's not how we beat demagogues in the past. We didn't beat Bull Connor by bringing bigger dogs and more powerful fire hoses. We built it by expanding the moral imagination of our country to be better, to, to, to appeal to our higher angels. And so what distinguishes me is I can beat Donald Trump. I, I know I can but I am not going to beat him by fighting him in the, in the gutter. I'm going to beat him by appealing to the grace and the decency of our country. I'm tough and strong, but I don't mistake this, this, this confusion that we have to think that you to be strong, you have to be cruel. To be tough, you have to be mean. That's not who we are as Americans. Now more than ever, we need to be a party that's not about what we're against, but about what we're for. Not about beating Republicans simply, we need to be in this moral moment about uniting Americans for the cause of justice. That's when we've been at our best as a country. So if you want somebody who's going to fight fire with fire, let me tell you right now, as a mayor, I ran a fire department. It's not a good strategy for putting out fires. It just creates more fire. I believe more than ever that this is a moral moment in our country where we need to heal we need leaders that can inspire us to come back together and solve the pressing problems. That's what distinguishes me. That's the kind of leader I'm going to be. I am determined to put more indivisible back into this one nation under God. Thank you. Thanks, George. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Dan, how are you? I'm good. All right. Now, I'm going to take you back a few months to an event that you attended. Please. And I want to get this right. Okay. So do you support this 16-word sentence the president used in the 2019 State of the Union address? to address education policy. I'm sure you're familiar, but to help support working parents, the time has come to pass school choice for America's children, is well, what he stated. Well, let me tell you right now, I've seen Republican brands of th those words and what they mean. What they mean is this cynical attempt to destroy public education as we know it. It's a cynical attempt to, I think, in many ways, segregate our schools more, to divide us more between the haves and have-nots, children of parents of privilege or affluence can get great schools and other kids will be left with a voucher that doesn't pay for even the best schools that they send their kids to. Enough is enough. We need to stop the assault on public education in our country and we need to fully fund our schools. Right now, we don't fully fund special needs education. If I'm President of the United States, I'm going to make sure that instead of the 18% we're funding now, we fully fund that, which will actually help for educational equity, which is why the Department of Education was started in the first place. I'm going to make sure that the teaching profession has elevated salaries for our teachers, that make sure that they can get rid of their student debt, that make sure that their tax treatment 
Why is it that a teacher who's adding so much to our economy, because you can't have any other profession without the teaching profession, they pay more of their salary in taxes than someone who works for a hedge fund? That's, that doesn't make sense. That's not a reflection of our values. So I want you to know I'm a guy who actually was a mayor of a city and we saw our school system work for our kids. Right now, if you're a poor kid in our city, if you're an African-American kid in our city, which is a majority of our children, your chances of going to a high-performing school to beat the suburbs went up almost 400% because we focused on our children and we focused on the teaching profession. And so as your president, those are the strategies I'm going I'm to use, focusing on elevating teacher salary, attracting more teachers into the profession, especially in, in neat districts with higher needs, and I'm going to focus on making sure that we more fund equity. And the last thing I want to say and one of, yet another one of the reasons I voted against Betsy DeVos and fought against her becoming our Secretary of Education is because there are a lot of kids that go to school that are facing discrimination in ways that we need to talk about more. LGBTQ kids, about 30% about report not going to school at some point because of fear. And we're rolling back protections for trans kids and others. The school to prison pipeline. We know from lots of studies that black kids and white kids who have the same infractions that black kids are more likely to be out of school place. We, we had a president before that was focusing on those issues of school discipline and school equity. And now we're rolling back that as well. I'm going to change that. And so I have a view of education that's far more comprehensive, but focusing on public schools, public education, fairness. And the last thing I want to say, I'm sorry, this is the second Don't last thing. I'm, I'm loving this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving your jacket. <laughs> Thank you. The last thing I want to say is this. We've got to stop in America thinking that education is just K-12. Other countries are blowing past us because they're focusing on brain development when it starts, mm -hmm. which is in the second and third trimester. We lead the planet Earth, guys, in infant mortality. We need to start letting make sure that all of our pregnant women are getting doula care and uh, prenatal services so we have more healthy babies born and then... We need to join the rest of the developed world and start investing in universal preschool yes. and affordable childcare and paid family leave. These are all things that the studies show that help our students be so much more successful. How many kindergarten teachers do you all know here that tell the truth that our kids get to school already behind? We need to start talking about the true pathway to education in this country that leads to great careers, starts in the womb and goes all the way past college to, to having apprenticeship programs, having free junior college, free um, uh, county community colleges, and, and pathways to career success. That's the kind of education leader I will be. Well, we're having a board meeting tonight in Manchester at 7 p.m. If you'd care to <laughs> share <laughs> any of that with the, with the community, we'd all, but thank you very I, I much. I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. I'm going to shake your hand. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Dan. Uh, social media question now coming from John Ferrant. How do you plan to address the drug abuse issue? Again, I, this is a crippling issue to lots of communities, to my state and your state. The opioid addiction crisis is it's epidemic. And, and, I, and I can't, as a guy who went to problems and challenges that people told me we couldn't solve, and we, we made tremendous strides, don't anybody tell me that we can't deal with the opioid crisis in this country. It's not a matter of can we, it's do we have the collective will. And right now, there are a lot of great actors I've watched Maggie Hassan and Jean Shaheen, what they've done on this issue, your, state, your United States Senators, but we've got to do a lot more. We've got to do more by holding the prescription drug companies uh, who many ways have fueled this problem accountable. There should be law enforcement there. 
Uh, we need to make sure that we are doing preventative things that we're not doing right now that we know work. We've got to make sure that we are funding the evidence-based models that actually drive. There are a lot of examples around this country of people who are driving down uh, uh, this crisis in certain pockets. We need to make that more universal. We need to prepare ourselves to be a country that better stops these drugs coming in and that has better access to treatment and doesn't use the criminal justice system to deal with a problem that we should be dealing with in our communities through much more enlightened care. That's the kind of president I'm going to be. That we're going to definitely ramp up resources, but we're going to have more of a conviction to show that this problem that started in this country can be ended in this country under my presidency. Next question comes from Thalia Flores. Hi, Senator Booker. Hi. Welcome. Thank you very much. Is the first name Natalia? Thalia. Thalia. Mm -hmm. Nice to meet you, Thalia. Nice to meet you. Um, my question is, would you share with us what inspired you to take on your first roles in public service and how that shaped you as a candidate for president of the United States now? So Thalia, um, <laughs> so I'm this law student with a high sense of self-regard <laughs> and I come into a community. I wanted to be part of a community in struggle, a beautiful community. And I moved into the central ward of Newark and was overwhelmed a little bit about the challenges that were there. And I still remember the tenant president of those buildings. When I first met her, I showed up again, this high sense of self-regard. I'm here to help you, ma'am. And she looks at me cynically and she's like, almost as if she was saying like, you need some help, young man. And she brings me down to Martin Luther King Boulevard, surrounded by these, a lot of challenges. We had shootings in our neighborhood, a abandoned building used for drug dealing, drug dealing going on around us, the projects. And she goes, what do you see? And I described the neighborhood just like that. And she goes, well, you can't help me. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, boy, the world you see on the outside is a reflection of what you have on the inside. And if you're one of those people who only sees problems, darkness, and despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see hope, possibilities, you see love, you see the face of God, then you can help me. And she just walks away, leaving me there, thinking to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus ended the lesson. <laughs> that woman became my best professor. I got my BA at Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark from incredible people. And we went to work. We took on a slumlord that people said was too powerful, too connected to beat. We organized people, brought them together, and we beat him. And around the time that we were doing these great things in community activists, they decided they wanted to beat City Hall. And they were going to run against the machine. Mm -hmm. And she said to me at a community meeting that you are going to be our candidate for the Central Ward Council seat. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm your lawyer. I just got here a year ago. And she goes, boy, why are you here? Are you here to be a lawyer or are you here to help the people? She gave me my first lesson that life is about purpose and not position. And I got into politics. And we beat the machine by organizing people. My opponent, who'd been in office forever, had gotten the same amount of votes he always got. But we organized folks and brought out an entirely new electorate. And so my whole political career has been about that purpose, bringing people together to solve problems people said couldn't be solved, to stay true to my purpose. It's why when Miss Virginia Jones, that woman said to me, don't leave the community if you get elected to city council, I've stayed loyal and I still live in that uh, uh, inner city community today. We in this nation need the same thing right now. We need to bring people together to take on those challenges that some people think are bigger than we are, but they're not. When we come together as a country, we've beaten the Nazis, we beat Jim Crow, we've gone to the moon, we've done incredible things. The tribalism in our country has to stop where we hate each other just because we're different parties. Come on now. We have common values. We have common pain. I'm going to be a president that pulls people together back to that sense of common purpose to take on these tough challenges and overcome them the American way. Thank you. Thank you, Thalia. Another social media question coming in, this one from Lynn Lowell. How does Mr. Booker feel about UBI, universal basic income? I, I, I love the ideas behind that, which is this idea that work is changing, 
that you have people now, in my dad's era, if you worked a minimum wage job, you were above the poverty line. Now you can work more than the minimum wage job and you're still gonna find yourself with more month at the end of your money than money at the end of your month. In fact, there's not a county in America where you can afford a two-bedroom apartment for your family on a minimum wage job. And as jobs are disappearing, this idea of universal basic income says basically, hey, let's make sure that every American has a floor. So I understand what's coming behind it, but I actually, it's not the way I would go about it. I think there's other things that we could be doing that do a lot better, and that's why I have things like my RISE credit. What is that? That means instead of giving these tax cuts to the wealthiest of Americans, we should actually target tax credits to every working in America. And if you're making under like $54,000 a year, we should expand that earned income tax credit in a way that gets you now $4,000 back, a couple $8,000 back. My plan would actually lift the income of 150 million Americans and cut poverty by a third. But we're not even stopping there. We're gonna redefine work under my presidency because there's somebody in this room that knows the pain of my mom. That you are working full time, not in a job anymore, my mom was retired, supporting someone who's sick in your family. My father had Parkinson's and Parkinson's dementia. Now, my mom had fortunately had resources to be able to take care of my dad, but a lot of families, you all know some folks like this, they're struggling so hard taking care of a sick family member and falling behind. My plan redefines work to say that people are home taking care of a special needs child or a, a, a parent or a spouse that's suffering from something like dementia, they should be qualifying for that credit as well, and it brings them that $4,000 tax credit or that $8,000 tax credit as well. And it doesn't cap out like the earned tax credit does now when you get to be 65, it keeps going uh, as long as you're alive. Next question comes from Benjamin Pelletier. Hello, Senator Booker. Benjamin, how are you? I'm good, how are you? All right, you, you look, and I say this now as a guy that just turned into his 50s, you look young. Yeah, <laughs> I'm in college. Are you in college yes. right now? Yeah. All right. Um, and where do you go to school? I go to St. Anselm. St. Anselm, that's yep. wonderful. Thank you. Please. Um, the United States military has been involved in, the, in foreign disputes for many years now. How would you handle foreign situations such as Venezuela if you were president? Well, I, I'm tired of my country thinking the solution to every conflict or every problem overseas is just to send in the United States military. We, we've got to start thinking a lot more judiciously about the use of American force. And as we've learned in Iraq, that sometimes when you use American force, especially under that circumstance, we went in on false pretenses, that it could to turn into a quagmire. And in many ways, the citizens of those countries uh, uh, often see many, many challenges related with our intervention. I, I worry that when the crisis in Venezuela happened, there were a lot of people that just wanted to go in uh, for war. I worry that we're a nation that right now had a deal to, that was verifiably pushing back Iran's pathway to a nuclear weapon. And we have a president just pulled us out of that. And now Iran is threatening to go back to trying to build a nuclear weapon. That is another example that shows you that we need to be a nation that better uses diplomacy, strategy, and working with our allies to solve problems without the use of military intervention. And so this is what frustrates me, is we have a president that's trying to do foreign policy by toxic tweet. Literally saying to us, oh, we've solved the North Korea situation. There's nothing to worry about anymore. Well, clearly that's not working. We have a, a president that even our trade battles with China, which we should be fighting China for the theft of our intellectual property, for the first tran forced transfer for, of technology and more unfair practices. But you know what we did at a time that we needed to say, hey, we're the strongest nation on the planet Earth, but with our allies, our strength multiplies. Instead of joining with our allies on a strategy that could win with China, what did we do? We turned to our allies and with Canada, we used a national security waiver to put tariffs on them. 
Now, I know you all up here in New Hampshire know how much of a threat Canada is, so of course we need to use a national security measure to stop those Canadians. Trudeau! <laughs> Come on now. Enough of a president that doesn't have a strategy to keep us safe, that's making areas like the Middle East more violent, violating our values in places like Yemen, ripping up deals that were pushing back nuclear weapons, threatening to go to war and bring our troops to war in Venezuela. Enough of the bluster, enough of the toxic tweets. If I'm your president, we are going to have strategies to deal with the world's challenges. We're going to bring together our allies to deal with them. And we're going to prioritize challenges different than this president who doesn't even want to, ex uh, to admit that there's an existential crisis on our planet called climate change and pulled us out of the Paris Accords when we should be joining with other nations to solve our problems in a peaceable way. Thank you. Senator, you mentioned the war in Iraq, and it seems like for a lot of people, especially young people, that war really colored their impression of the mission of spreading democracy around the planet. And we see a lot of other governments, uh, Russia, China, emboldened in spreading their message and their form of government around the planet. So how would you bring back in a way that would be, quote unquote, cool for young people, the proselytization of freedom? Or would you do that at all? Well, you, you want to do that. Look, how can we have a president right now that seems to get better along with Putin and Duterte more than he gets along with Merkel and May. I mean, he literally insults our leaders, our, our allies on the public stage, and seems to cozy up with dictators, doesn't even call them out. He, he meets on the national stage next to Putin, who has not only attacked our elections, but is attacking our election, and doesn't even seem to bring that up. God, Ronald Reagan is twisting in his grave, a guy that stood up to Gorbachev. And so enough of this. The, the way we need to get back our moral standing in the world is by first evidencing our values, not turning our back on our allies, not engaged in, in, in conflicts like Yemen that we have no business being in in the first place. I want to give you one more quick example. I was flying into Zimbabwe with Jeff Flake, a Republican, and, another, and a delegation of senators to talk to Emengagwa, the, the man who took over from Mugabe, and to, to try to push him for... Uh, 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 free and fair elections. At the same time, he's flying in from China, and the headlines were saying things like, China doesn't care about what we do in our government. They just want to have partnerships to take our resources and the like. That's the competition that's going on on the planet Earth right now, between democratic, free nations and totalitarian states. That's the competition. And you see nations like Hungary starting to slip to authoritarian regime. The United States has a role to play and must be out there now elevating democratic ideals and principles because if we're not leading that charge, this planet is in peril and freedom is going to slip away. I'm going to be a president, join strong with our allies to affirm democratic principles everywhere we can. We're going to lead with our values and not the cynical way we seem to be leading right now with our values being corrupted by uh, what I believe are uh, uh, the twisted values that this president is representing on the international stage. Next question comes from Ann Ackerman. Hi there. Um, welcome back to New Hampshire. Very good to see there you. are many strong Democratic candidates. What one or two of your experiences or qualifications make you the stronger candidate? I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad, glad you asked me this question, Ms. Ackerman, because there is an abundance of incredible candidates. Some of them are my closest friends uh, that I have in politics that are running, and we have a lot of good choices, and what a blessing that is. Um, but I, I want to challenge people to understand that I have a very different resume than others. Uh, my entire life, I have gone to areas in our country that have had the most difficult challenges. I didn't come out of law school and uh, uh, take on other things. I said, let me go to the toughest place in New Jersey. And there I got the best education of my life from people in the trenches who were fighting this battle. And we produced results. In the middle of a recession, 
when our, when our country was sliding into this recession, we brought strategies to bear in Newark, New Jersey, that took a city known for crime and corruption with that reputation or for crime and corruption and decay, 60 years of losing its population and losing its economic base, and we massively turned it around. And I say we very purposely, because it wasn't a savior, it was a community doing it together. And what we ended up accomplishing is not only the greatest period of economic growth in 60 years, helping entrepreneurs get businesses started, bringing businesses back, reforming our school system, but even more than that, we did it by affirming our values, not for gentrification, not uh, uh, to allow uh, our, our, our citizens who live there for a long time not have opportunities. And so, you know, I was up in Berlin uh, just yesterday, and we were driving in the North Country, and some of the legislation that I passed already on ideas I learned when I was mayor is helping the North Country. I talked to uh, a small business person whose husband owned a brewery. They said, your opportunity zone legislation is helping us to get new investment to the tune of millions of dollars. It's going to create dozens of jobs up here, and we need it. You want somebody that's going to help fix uh, Washington? Bring a mayor in that's had to be a tactician in the toughest of terrains and show progress for turning things around. And the last thing I want to say, and this distinguishes me, and I've said it before, but I want to say it again. You know, tribalism is fear-based. And this is what you hear. Uh, you turn on TV, be afraid of other Americans. It's zero-sum game. It's us against them. I think that this is the toxin right now in our society. I, I think Donald Trump is bad, but I think that's a symptom. He, he, he does bad things. It's a symptom of a larger problem of, of growing tribalism in our country. Where you could take something as simple as, hey, we should close the terrorist loophole. <laughs> Where 80, over 80% 80 of gun owners agree with that, but we can't get it done in Washington because it's almost like, oh, this side gets a win, this side gets a loss. And so I, I just want you to know that the best part of my resume that I'm most proud about is bringing people together to solve really tough problems. I know this is a time where I'm hurt, I'm angry, but my mom taught me that you've got to channel that in, not to being letting your soul become contorted and, and becoming that which you oppose, but this should be a moment where you, you elevate, elevate your spirit. And so, yeah, I'm talking about grace and decency, and, and I want to be a president that gets up every single day and doesn't go to my Twitter feed and think about how I'm going to demean Americans, but help our country have redeeming a redeeming of our values, because the best of who we are has always been when Americans come together across the lines that divide them and affirm the ties that bind them. I look at, I look at the Underground Railroad, branches of it ran through this state. You know how they, they, they formed that? Black folks and white folks meeting in secret in barns to plan that great infrastructure project. That's the best of who we are as a country. And I think we need a leader that's going to inspire that and work on that every single day from the White House. That's what I'm going to bring. Thanks, Thank Andrew. you. Thank you. And thanks, Senator. We've got a couple more minutes before we wrap up here, so I'm just curious. We've talked a lot about your time in Newark. What was the worst day you had on the job there, and how did you get through it? The worst day I had on the job was one of my first days when in the projects I was living in. As you said, I lived in some high-rise projects for about eight years. One of the kids that I saw grow up there, his name was Hassan Washington, and he was just like my dad, born to a single mom, being raised by his grandmother for a period of time, from poor family, and I love these kids. He had the same wit and humor. He was a born leader. One day I came home and they're smelling, I smelt marijuana, which for kids at Stanford, no problem. You can explore. For kids in the inner city, it is a, a alarm. And I started working with him and him and his crew and taking them out and uh, trying to set up mentoring. But I got too busy because I was running for mayor. I went and become mayor. 
And then the kids disappeared because I immediately got death threats before I even swore my oath, and they started stationing police officers in the projects, safe as they had been in a long time. Well, as I'm running around in my first days as mayor, having lost track of the kids, I show up at the scene of a homicide and a kid being loaded into a van. And I, I, I confess to you the shame of barely affirming the humanity there. I turn to, to minister to the living and tell people that this is not who we are, that we would overcome these challenges. And indeed, we, we, we lowered rates of violence in our city. I'm proud of that, but we have a long way still to go in America as well as Newark. I get home that night and I'm going through my Blackberry and, and for their police reports and I see that name, the homicide report. And I pull it up and there I see the name of the victim, Hassan Washington. And something in me broke. My dad, who grew up poor in the South, the community was there for him when his grandmother couldn't take care of him. People literally took him to his home when he had no college in my family's history, but they told him at a, at a church, you're going to college and we're pulling together a collection to get you enough money to roll. They would not let one child fare, but here, fail, but here God put a kid right on my doorstep every single day. And when he was struggling, when he was suffering, when I saw signs of crisis, I, I got too busy. Everybody was there for his funeral. It was packed in this room. We were moaning and crying and hurting. And all I could think about in that feeling of shame is we are all here for his death, but where were we for his life? I swore that day, number one, I would never get too busy. This morning I was texting with one of my mentees in Newark. I don't care what title you're going for, it should never undermine the truth of our lives. That the biggest thing you can do in any day is most often going to be a small act of kindness and decency and love. And so I don't care how busy I am in this election, I'm going to be talking to my mentees as often as I can. But it's more than that. We come from a beloved community. That's our history. When we stand up for each other, when we reach out to each other, patriotism is love of country and you cannot love your country unless you love your fellow countrymen and women. We may not always agree, but love says that if your kids don't have a great public education, my kids are worse off. If your parents don't have great health care, then my family is less secure. That injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Love is not a sentiment, it is demanding, it is sacrifices actions. And now, I'm sorry, this may not be the word you want to hear in a presidential election, but we need more love in this country. We need more caring, more decency, more reaching out, more understanding that we're all in this together, that we we need each other. Rugged individualism is a great ideal in our country, but rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon. It didn't beat the Nazis. We are here because of the bonds that have held this nation together through trials and tribulations, through demagogues like McCarthyism and others that rose and fell because we weeded them out of the garden of our democracy because as we said we are going to be a nation like our Declaration of Independence says, where we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We need that honor back, and dear God, we need it back in the White House, and I'm going to bring it. All right, Senator Cory Booker. That brings conversation to the candidate with a wrap. Thank you for your time. Thank you to the audience. We'll Thank see you, you next time. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.